0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad they turned the lights down a little bit. I was getting a little blinded up here. Uh, I'm John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway Community Church, and it is my privilege and honor to bring you our message this morning. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, meals. Um, I've had a lot of them. I actually was going to make this a quiz, but some of you are so quick with mental math that this wouldn't have been any kind of challenge. I was wondering the other day, of just how many meals do I think I've eaten in my life? Um, so I um, you know, did, a, did a quick calculation, uh, of course not in my head, but using some kind of apparatus known as Google, um, and came up with uh, something, something around 58,000 meals, give or take a few thousand. It's a lot of meals, a lot of meals. Uh, and it's, so it's no surprise that some of my earliest memories revolve around meals. So growing up in New York City, we lived in Queens for most of that time, we would visit my grandmother, uh, my father's mother in Brooklyn. We would actually hop in the car and we would drive there to uh, Wy- Wyckoff Avenue uh, in Brooklyn where she had her house. And I was, I was really small, I remember that. Whenever we went to grandma's house, there was always food. Anybody relate to that? I don't know what it is about grandma equals food. That's like a universal mathematical uh, equation. Don't really know why that is. But uh, there was always food there. And, you know, uh, Grandma Angelina, uh, I don't know what it was. The lady was always in the kitchen. She was always cooking something. Uh, it seemed that way. Um, and she'd always tell me in front, of a, in front of some, when I was in front of some food, manja, Johnny. Manja, I know some of you, this is like a movie, right? You guys have seen, what, Sopranos or something? I don't know. But no, this is, this is legit. And, and manja, manja is, is eat. Manja is eat, right? And it's, it's not really a command. It's more of a, like a let's eat kind of thing. It's an it's a invitation. Let, let's eat. Uh, manja, Johnny. And she called me Johnny. That's the way it was. Um, and I still remember the pots on her stove. They were like that speckled kind of enamel, I don't know if you remember, like from 100 years ago, um, they're a dark speckle, and, and she would cook all kinds of delicacies, um, you know, lasagna and, and, you know, wonderful, you know, homemade ravioli and all these other things, I'm getting hungry as I'm talking about this, uh, time to go to Costco, and she would um, cook this stuff, and I asked her once, um, I'm over the house, and I'm little, I'm about five years old, Grandma, Grandma, what are you cooking? Um, so she lifted up my five-year-old self to look into the pot, and I look in the pot, and I see something that looks like tentacles. So I said, uh, Grandma, what, what are you cooking? Um, and she said, she said, oh, Johnny, that's, uh, that's pulpo. octopus. After that, every time I went to Grandma's house and saw that pot, I was afraid not every meal is as it seems. So in the Bible, meals are very significant. Meals, in a way, are the bookends of our Bibles. Uh, The history of God's interaction with human beings begins and ends with with a meal. You ever think of that? Um, As recorded in Genesis 3, all of our troubles began with a meal gone wrong. War and pain and tragedy and disease, our alienation from God and from each other began with a meal gone wrong. But in Revelation 19, we read about at the wedding feast of the Lamb, when God and humanity will be fully re- reunited to live together with him and with each other, that alienation overcome, begins and ends with, with a meal so today, we're going to look at a meal, and I think it's safe to say that this meal is one of the most important in the whole Bible. Here, here's what I mean. This meal is miraculous, um, miraculous. We're not going to talk about octopus in a pot. This is a miraculous meal. And What, what, what exactly is a miracle? Well, a miracle, hmm, very hard to define, but a miracle is something, let's call it something good that shouldn't have happened. Uh, Let's call it an, a non-ordinary event that has God as the ultimate source. Now, how important is this particular miracle? Because we know the Bible has a number of, number of events that really shouldn't have happened uh, in, in ordinary time. Well, this is how important it is. In the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, there, are, there are only two miracles that appear in each one of those books. Only two. Only two miracles that those writers said, this is so important, we need to put this into our account of Jesus' life. The one miracle was Jesus' resurrection. The second miracle is what we're going to read today. So as we read, we're going to hold a lens, and we're going to be looking at uh, uh, two main things in this story. Um, One, we're going to ask ourselves, what does this story tell us about Jesus? What do we learn? And I don't have PowerPoint. You're going to have to listen. What do we learn about Jesus? I'm going to give you seven things. Oh, you're thinking, wait, seven. We're going to be here forever. I promise I'm going to get you out before the game. And this is kind of good practice. You get used to keeping score. This is good. Seven things. Seven things. And we need to get a good handle on those seven things because from seven we're going to go to one, there's one response that we're going to... It's a big ask. So we need to, we need to tap into that seven, get a good handle on that. Um, why, why do we under, have to understand that seven? You know, Ed said something a few weeks ago. We quoted the, the Christian writer, uh, tr- tremendous... Uh, voice in the middle of the 20th century, uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, who wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if that's true, if we can shine a lens on Jesus and see what we learn about Jesus and we get a true picture of who he is, it's going to do good things for us. So we're going to spend a fair amount of time on that. Um, And I promise I will get you out uh, before the game. So that's... Lens on Jesus, ours. We're going to look at what the story has to do with us. Yeah, with with us, with suburban residents of Northern Virginia in the year 2024. What does this story have to do with us, and how are we supposed to respond? Pray with me, please. Lord, my prayer today is that you use my voice, but that I also get out of your way. I don't want to be a hindrance to what you want to do today. But I do know that you, you want to use my voice. So, please. And I, um, Lord, I, I look out today and I see, I see a lot of people. And I know there are other people listening. And we're all in different places with you, God. And I always think of that. And, but I, I know, I'm confident in you, God, that you are able to reach every single one of us wherever we stand today whether we're outside of faith, whether we're running with you, whether we're rock solid in you, whether we, eh, we're not really sure what I believe, you are able to reach every single one of us where we stand today. I'm confident in that, God. So I give you these words in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read from Matt, uh, sorry Mark's account of, of this story. In chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, we're going to have it on the screen. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand up, just get a little stretch in here. Um, so I'm going to read here, and it's, again, it's on the screen. You can get it on your phone, whatever is helpful for you to, or even the even old school physical Bible, you can look at that. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd... You give them something to eat. They said to him, that would would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, we have five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand you may be seated hmm. so we're we're in the raw unvarnished gospel of Mark at a curious time uh, see Jesus Jesus has been seen by most as as rabbi teacher uh, prophet uh, and a few may be wondering if he is he's Messiah the one who was uh, uh, the Old Testament and tradition had forecast was, was coming. Uh, and he's, he's just had some news. Some of it is very good and some of it is very bad. So let's look at the good first. If we had started at the beginning of this chapter, like good Bible readers uh, who always read in context, we would have read how Jesus has sent out the 12, his students, um, those closest to him. They went on a mission trip. They went into the towns surrounding of Galilee, and they went without him. This is the first time they actually went out on their own without him. Um, there will be another time where Jesus sends out the 72. but This is the first time the 12 went out. And they were, here, here were his instructions. Listen to this. He says, take nothing for the journey. Don't, uh, he says, take a staff. Okay. Don't take bread. Don't take, don't take a bag. Don't put money in your belts. Wear sandals, but don't bring an extra shirt. Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Um, and verse 12 of this chapter, talks about the result. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So the disciples went out and they did Jesus stuff. And this was really good news for Jesus to hear. uh, I think for a couple reasons. One is, his disciples touched a lot of people's lives. They preached the kingdom of God is here. They, They healed people's bodies. They broke the chains of the demonically oppressed. And also for Jesus, I think this was validation. It was validation that his authority... Because he gave them authority. His authority could be transferred to his followers. That's really, really good news. But there's a dark cloud hanging over this. See, Jesus has just heard that his cousin John, who we know as John the Baptist, or the baptizer, um, he's just been murdered by Herod. Herod's family, uh, King Herod, his family was in a moral mess, and John had the guts to stand up and actually say something to him. And uh, what happens on this planet so often when someone speaks truth to power? They wind up dead. That's their reward. So Jesus hears this, and he must be thinking, this is how they treated John. This is how they're going to treat me. So at the same time, there's joy At the report of the disciples' success, there is also grief, and the air is heavy with it. This is a debrief. Jesus wants to get along with his disciples and hear about their experiences. And Jesus says, we need to go somewhere far from the madding crowd and get some rest. So the first thing we learn about Jesus is that he honors our human limits. He honors our human limits. Here's what I mean. Notice it was Jesus that told the disciples, let's get away and get some rest. He's acknowledging that the disciples need rest. If you think of it, he could have said something like, hey, this is great. You all did fantastic. Um, Okay, take 13 minutes. No, no, I'll give you a whole half hour, right? Half time. Whole half hour and and get back out there. You know why? Because the need is great. There's more people that need to be healed. There's more people that are demonically oppressed, and they all need to hear my message. And that, you know what? That would have been factually true. The need is great, but that's not how Jesus works. He honors our human limits. He honors our human limits, the rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. This is built into creation. On the seventh day, God rested, Genesis says. And as Jesus reminded some of his interlocutors, the Sabbath was made for man. We learn that he honors our human limits. We also learn here that Jesus leads his people. He leads them. He doesn't drive them. He leads them. He leads them. doesn't drive them. It's a big difference here. The driver says, go and do that. The leader says, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do, and I want you to come with me. Big, big difference, and I feel like I need to sit on this point for a second. Um, We need to absorb just how different Jesus is here from our typical experience. Yeah, am I going out of bounds if I confess that we are a driven people? We're driven. We even use this as a positive adjective, don't we? (laughs) She's really driven. Well, how are we driven? We're driven to work more than we should. We're driven to want things that aren't good for us. We're driven to buy things that we don't need. And this has become habit for most of us. And here Jesus is saying, come away and get some rest. He's leading. He's not driving. He is not your utterly unreasonable boss or your ridiculously demanding parent or even your demanding spouse. I have to put this in here because my wife is going to see this later and she'll actually be here. I do not have a demanding spouse. She's awesome. She should probably demand more. But I know some of you are in these situations. We get tired and it's okay. We get weary of peopling and it's okay. And we need rest. We need downtime. Jesus leads us into that rest with him. So we learn that about him. But the rest here doesn't last for long. You see, Jesus' ministry is becoming so well-known, his fame is growing to tailor swifty in proportions. So his attempt to jump in a boat and sail across Galilee and get to a nice quiet spot on the north shore, Bethsaida, as one of the other writers tell us, well, that attempt is shot to pieces. And Jesus and his disciples pull up to the shore and instead of a quiet haven, they see thousands of people. The crowd is probably large because as John tells us in his account, it's Passover time. So uh, this area has has swelled with over a a million Jews from other places to celebrate in in Jerusalem. Now, if I were expecting to get some downtime um, and instead I find myself surrounded by a few thousand people Oh, looking at me, my reaction is probably going to be something like this. Oh, for crying out loud. I can't even get a minute. But Mark tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw them. He was moved. And the Greek behind this is actually a little more expressive. It says his heart went out, his, his gut um, um, His his inner self went out to them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew, uh, in his account, uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 36, adds a little bit. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I wonder how many of the crowd would have described themselves that way or how many of us would describe ourselves that way, harassed and helpless sheep. Calling someone sheep doesn't seem very complimentary to us because sheep are like, what, dumb? Uh, not really. You know, some years ago, this, uh, when we moved here, this, this city boy uh, went to Frying Pan Park in Fairfax County, um, took the kids there, and um, they have livestock there. You know, they have sheep and goats and cattle and whatever else they have there. Um, uh, we found out some fascinating things about sheep. You know, sheep are are not particularly dumb, but they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to all kinds of diseases. They're vulnerable to predators. They've had all their natural defenses bred out of them. Their teeth are really small. They don't have fangs. Their hooves are on the small side. And in the face of danger, all they can do is run, and they're not that fast. Sheep are vulnerable. Look, no one looks at a crowd... And the first thing that comes to mind is weakness and vulnerability. That, that's not how we usually think. If, 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 I, if I were to magically drop you uh, later on today to, into Allegiant Stadium, and you are surrounded by 65,000 screaming fans, the last thing you would think of is, wow, look at the weakness and vulnerability of these people. You'd probably instead be thinking something like, wow, they've had a lot to drink. But Jesus is not blinded by the volume of the crowd, by the appearance of strength. He knows the true nature of the crowd. He knows what we really like, and he's moved. He's moved. And as I've said, we learned that his heart went out to them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mm. Sheep without a shepherd, wait a second. If you've read the Bible before, that may sound familiar. In the best commentary ever written on the New Testament, the best one ever written on the New Testament is the Old Testament. We read um, numerous times that without godly leadership, God's people were called sheep without a shepherd. I'll give you an example. In 1 Kings chapter 22, the prophet Micaiah prophesies against the evil king Ahab, who was about to lose his life by fighting a battle that God told him not to fight. Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is giving a ringing indictment against the leadership of his day. And we see this numerous times in the ministry of Jesus where he goes after the leaders for not taking care of the people. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke eleven forty six. 46. He says, you experts in the law, you guys that call yourselves subject matter experts and the people look up to, woe to you because you load people down with burdens and you don't lift a finger to help them. But Jesus is showing himself to be the true shepherd, the true King of Israel. So Jesus is moved, his heart goes out to them because they are needy, and his compassion moves him to action, and he begins to address their number one need. Their number one need that he is addressing, he begins to teach them. We learn here that Jesus understands something about humanity that very few people understand. We learn here that Jesus understands what we really need. What is it? Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man, humans, do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus understands our true nature and our true need. We learn that Jesus understands our true nature and true needs. See, see, some of us, you and I, some of us may classify ourselves as vegetarians, right? I'm not one. Uh, some of you may be vegetarians. Uh, or, or omnivores. I imagine most of us are probably omnivores, right? Uh, I eat everything and, and too much of it. Um, you weren't supposed to laugh at that, by the way. Uh, vegans. Some, some of us are vegans, right? Uh, no animal. Problem. Some of us are pescatarians. I didn't really know what that was until a friend of mine. Told me what that is. Fish. That's their main source of, of protein for a pescetarian is fish. Jesus understands that we are all logovores. We're logovores. Logo, word, word. We are meant, we are word eaters. We are made to live on God's words. We're logovores. The key to human flourishing is to listen to what God says. That's the true food of our lives. Our number one need is to hear and inwardly digest God's words. Oh, re- really, John? Well, well, stay with me. Think for a moment. Think for a second about how God uses words. God used words to speak the world into existence. Genesis chapter 1, when you have a chance, look at this. See how many times it, uh, it's written, And God said, let there be, let there be, Creatures, uh, let their let the, the seas be filled, et cetera, et cetera. And it was so. God said it, and it happened. It was so. Uh, Hebrews one three says that uh, Jesus actually sustains sustains all of creation. He is the the, the undergirding the he, he maintains us by his powerful word. God's words are an expression of his character. He does things to us by his words. Some of you know this passage from Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. We are logivores. We live, made to live, by eating God's words. But we're not just logivores. We need food. We need physical food. And we learn here that Jesus cares for the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. We learn that Jesus cares for the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. There's a priority here. God's words come first, Because that's our biggest need. He taught them. That's the first thing he did. But he cares about our bodies. He cares about our bodies so much that he's going to remake them one day. Well, we see in our story, it starts to get late. So his disciples, well, they're tired and hungry. I I know what that's like. And they get Jesus' attention. And I imagine it was something like this. Jesus. And they're very blunt they're blunt. There's no uh, Lord or Master or Rabbi. No, they're very blunt. They say, um, they actually, it sounds like they command Jesus. Jesus, send this crowd away. Get, get rid of these people. Send them like, look, we're we're tired and hungry, and so are they. You know, send them away so they can go. Look, I know that there's if they go right, to, I know there's a 7-Eleven there. You know, And I know, look, some of them, yeah, I know that there's, there's a wah wa, The sandwiches are really good. Look, send them away to these places and let them get some food. And Jesus says something very odd. You know, part of me expects Jesus to kind of give him a rebuke. <laughs> you know, he does not in, in the Gospel of Mark a lot. Um, he, he corrects a lot. He doesn't do that here. I, I kind of expect him to say, you guys need to have a heart or something or or can you think of someone besides yourselves he doesn't do that instead he gives a curious command to his disciples you give them something to eat and i can almost hear the disciples looking wait is he talking to us wait us us give them us give them something wait us Jesus, do you know how much this would cost? Really interesting, right? They go right to money, which is what we do a lot of times. Do you know what this would cost? Wait, let me, okay. Okay, how many thousands? All right, this would be like eight months' wages, Jesus. Uh, and you want, us to, you want us to spend that just to give everyone a crumb? I have to tell you something, brothers and sisters. This, this passage disturbs me. It disturbs me, and here's Why? If I didn't know better, I would think that Jesus is actually expecting them to feed the crowd. If I didn't know better, I would think that Jesus actually expects them to do something. Well, why would that be outrageous? Hmm. Didn't the disciples, when they came back from their mission trip, didn't they tell Jesus about all the things that they did? How they drove out demons and healed the sick? Didn't they... Didn't they tell them? He'll tell them that. They they did, but it seems like they've forgotten. They've forgotten that Jesus shared his authority with them to go out and do those things that he does. And we forget that too. All they see is a problem. These people are needy and I got nothing. I got nothing. Jesus, get rid of the problem. But here we learn that where we see a problem, Jesus sees possibility. Where we see a problem, Jesus sees possibility. And the possibility is not just for the crowd, but also for the disciples. So he asked them, okay, you you guys brought up bread. How many loaves do you have? Go and look. And they come back with "Hmm, five loaves. And you got to think, guys, these these are little pita breads. They basically come back with a little boy's lunch. So Jesus tells them, uh, sit on the grass. Wait, grass? I thought we were in the desert. Yeah, well, it's springtime. It's the Passover. It's the rainy season. And we hear echoes of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. The disciples give the bread and fish to Jesus and he does what he's probably done at meals hundreds of times before. He gives thanks to God and he breaks the bread except this time something extraordinary happens. You see, he told the disciples once he broke it, give this out, distribute it to the people. And they did. And they did. And they did. And they did. And they did, and they did. until every single person was fed. And we learn here that Jesus uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Jesus uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Jesus took a little boy's lunch and used it to create a banquet for 5,000 people. Wait, what? what? Who, wait, who, who gives, who miraculously provides bread in the desert for God's people to eat? Some of you know exactly what this means. Let's turn back a few thousand years to Exodus 16. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. The people of Israel called the bread manna. So we learn that Jesus is revealing himself as the unchanging Lord of Israel who cared for his people in the desert then and cares for them now. Oh, but what about us? What about us? I want you to imagine with me for a second What if God wants to feed the world through us? What if God expects to feed the world through us? Maybe we need to first agree that the world is starving. Starving for God. And most don't even know it. Like sheep without a shepherd. You know, my first impulse when I uh, am brave enough to leave my suburban bubble long enough to hear and see the need. My first impulse is very similar to what the disciples, how they reacted. I see my lack. I see my lack. Um, I'm not, okay, wait, tell my neighbors. About it. I'm, not, I'm not brave. Um, I don't have the energy. I come home exhausted from work. Um, and I don't understand enough. I don't understand the Bible enough. Um, and some days, I wonder if I even believe this. Uh, let's continue, I'm I'm too old, I'm too young, I see my lack. And I wonder if if for a lot of us, this is what keeps us from stepping in. We tell ourselves, I don't know if I have anything to really contribute here. Hmm. Or I feel incompetent to do this. And guys, I know especially for you, if you're anything like me, if you're going to feel incompetent at something, you're not going to step in. But guess what? None of us are competent. None of us are competent. We're not. And we don't have to be. That's not your job to make yourself competent. He's not asking for that. He's asking for the loaves and the fishes. And what are our loaves and fishes? This is what we have to give. It's us. You're the loaves and the fishes. It's us. It's us. He wants to use this to feed the world spiritually, physically, feed the whole person. It's us, and it starts with us giving him this. We hand over the loaves and the fishes. You know, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Romans. Um, Those of you that were in the Romans class, you, you know this. Paul has built this 11 chapters where he has talked about everything that Jesus has done. We have forgiveness through him. We're reconciled to God through Him. We, he's put His spirit in us. He's given us new life with Him. He's adopted us. And then in verse uh, chapter 12, He says, In view of God's mercy, everything that I've said, present your bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. Present your loaves and fishes to Him. Holy and pleasing to God, for that is your spe- reasonable uh, worship. If today, You feel like, God, I feel like I don't have much to give. I will say, good, you're in the same place as the disciples. But what do you have? You have yourself. You have yourself. So what's the hesitation? Are you afraid that he's not going to take care of you if you step up? Do you notice, and I, I skipped over this part, the disciples were also fed, Not only were they fed, they each walked away with a a monster doggy bag, a whole basket of food. He's going to feed you and you're going to have leftovers. And it begins with us giving ourselves to him. But what about us as a church? You know, a few weeks ago, when a few of us were up here, we're talking about our classes, right? Michelle had us up here and you know, doing the prayer class and talked a little bit about the Romans class and everything. And I looked out, I looked out at everybody here and I was struck with one thought and it was, wow, it was, wow, there's hundreds of you. Wow, Jesus had 12 and they turned the world upside down. There's hundreds of you. You have no idea. I almost interrupted the, the proceedings we were doing, and Michelle probably would have killed me because um, I would have made a mess of things. But I wanted, you know what I wanted to do that day? I wanted every single one of you to, to, a little crazy, but to get up here one at a time and look out and see the potential in Christ that we have here. The potential. I hope, I hope like me and like a lot of other people here you're not content to be a sleepy suburban church. We could do that. You know, we could do that. We could be a sleepy suburban church. But that's not the call on this church. We are called to give the loaves and fishes. You may not have a lot, that's okay. But you give what you have. And he's going to use us to feed the world. He's going to use us to feed the world. And it begins with giving ourselves to him. Stand with me, please. We're going to pray. Lord, we stand before you today. And so often, God, we look at, we look at what we don't have. We look at our lack We know other people are smarter than us, and more spiritual, and more faithful than us. And we thank you, Lord, that that doesn't matter. Lord, we know that you could have fed the 5,000 with nothing. And yet, yet, you invited the disciples to participate in that. And you invite us to participate with you in what you're doing in the world. God, where do we start? I know it starts with, we want to give ourselves, Lord, everything we know about ourselves today, we want to offer it to you. Even if it's only a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, we offer it to you, Lord. Lord, I also pray that you would give us concrete things to put physicality into this, that we would, we would step into, even if it's a small step, that we would step into whatever that is, Lord, whether it's signing up to work with the kids or set up the chairs or, or, or whatever that is, God, that you would, you would prompt us for that. And we thank you. We don't have to have all the answers. We just, we just have to give you, give you what we have. Lord, thank you for receiving our loaves and fishes. Um, thank you, Lord, for... Um, I know there might be one or two people here that are going to mark this day as the, as the day where they turned a corner with you. And maybe for others, it's not going to be that dramatic, Lord. We know you work incrementally a lot of times, so but we pray, Lord, that... Mm, you would set us on a path. You would set us on a trajectory that, when we look back, we're going to realize, "Ah, oh, God, God is using my. He's using me to feed the world." Lord, it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.